You're about to hear my conversation with Dr. Pam King. Pam is a really interesting lady. She has a Master's of Divinity and a PhD in Marriage and Family Studies. She's also an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. She's also an author. She co-authored the book, The Reciprocating Self, Human Development in Theological Perspective. She's a professor of psychology at Fuller Seminary. Her primary academic interests are applied research at the intersection of human thriving and spiritual development. So Pam looks at really interesting topics. She's been able to scientifically study and do research on what makes people thrive. She talks a lot about how we align our values in communities to find our purpose and how it's a process. So this conversation is super interesting to hear her perspective on things. She looks scientifically at a lot of the same questions that Christianity looks at theologically. Just one quick note before we jump into the conversation. Towards the end, you'll hear her use the phrase orange-throwing humans. She's alluding to an anecdote she shared with us in an earlier lecture. As the story goes, she had earlier that morning thrown an orange at a school bus in order to get the driver's attention, thinking that a child hadn't made it onto the bus. The child had, however, made it onto the bus and Pam felt silly about it. So she tells that story in the context of us discussing how the God of the universe came to be human in the person of Jesus and just identified so intimately with human weakness and silliness like a orange throwing human might be described as. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion and I'm the director of communications at Blueprint 1543. This conversation was recorded at one of our Theopsych seminars. Theopsych is a project that considers what new insights concerning human nature may be discovered when theology and psychology are brought together, an initiative supporting science-engaged theology. Hosted by Fuller Theological Seminary's Star Office and Blueprint 1543. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, so when you're talking about purpose, mm-hmm. let's talk about that first. Mm-hmm. People are obsessed with goals and purpose. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a very big market for like self-help books on how to achieve your goals, how to be more productive, how to find your purpose, which has more of like an existential ring to it. And sort of helping people, if, if they could just do sort of enough, I don't know, navel-gazing mm-hmm. or personality analysis or something, you will find your purpose. And that's kind of how people tend to think and... I was even sensing that energy in the room as you were talking yesterday where everyone's typing everything you say and you're like, oh, purpose, you know? And we're totally forgetting the theme of the seminar, which is Christology, because mm-hmm. my theory is when you hear psychological information, you're, you, you first diagnose yourself, you just start thinking about yourself and your own experiences, relationships, and stuff like that. So anyway, I just thought I'd ask you what your theory is on why that's such a hot topic for people mm-hmm. and why people seem so hungry for that. Mm-hmm. So I think in our current world and landscape, we have so many options. Now, that's speaking from a weird perspective of those living in the West that have means, et cetera. There's so many things we can do in life. Um, And 
other times in human existence, our, our place in the world has been more prescribed by roles or just limitations that we've had. But now our opportunities for learning and pursuing things is so vast. And coupled with that opportunity is also a decrease in traditional and conventional ways of making meaning, mm-hmm. um, which informs how we make choices. Right. And so when you have people with lots of opportunity and lots of motivation, because as humans, we are very motivated to grow and move forward. And our culture is one that really promotes that, but don't have that direction. Right. It can be very overwhelming. So we often talk about being paralyzed by opportunities or paralyzed by potential. And so I think people really crave purpose. Mm -hmm. But I think people really mistake that purpose is just self-driven and self-oriented. And if I take enough personality tests or do the Enneagram (laughs) or read Seventeen magazine and figure out what shade of lipstick best conveys my personality... that then I will, you know, come upon my purpose. Uh-huh. In the orientation that I come from, both as a person of faith and theologically and biblically and also as a psychologist, is that our purpose is really found at the intersection of who we are, both our strengths and our weaknesses, um, the w- needs of the world around us, the opportunities shaped by those closest to us, including God and human persons that we love the most, and also just by our ethical ideals and our spiritual sensibilities and how we are in the world. And it really takes finding the intersection of those places to help distinguish purpose. And I think purpose changes over time. Yeah. That, you know, we might have a purpose now, but that that purpose will then lead to something that will build from that. And I often think about the ends of purpose, which from a Christian perspective would be to honor honor and glorify God. Honorify. It's a new <laughs> word. Honorify is to honor and glorify all in one word. <laughs> yeah. I was writing something last week and I thought, ah, the call, like our vocation, our purpose is to be ourselves with others and for others and with God and for God. Totally. <laughs> we are weird in that our culture is very, we have the privilege of having a lot of options in our culture and relatively affluent, you know, on our, in, our, in our culture. Yeah, so WEIRD is an important acronym that it's important because a lot of folks who have shaped like the academic thinking or the psychology that I'm part of Mm -hmm. would be described as WEIRD. And WEIRD, W-I-E-R-D, stands for (laughs) Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. So there are a lot of philosophical, anthropological assumptions that come along with that experience of life. So even not too long ago, just a few hundred years ago, you might be born, more likely to be born into an agriculture agricultural society and have your options limited, and mm-hmm. I'm going to do the same job my dad did, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. And now we're sort of paralyzed by, by the amount of options we have. We can go to college and study whatever we want mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. But you, uh, you, and in your last answer and in today's lectures, you really emphasized the social component of even finding your purpose happens not in a vacuum. It happens in relationship with people as they affirm certain things. And then uh, there's sort of a back and forth between your innate strengths and abilities and interests and the environment you find yourself in, in particular, the, the people you're in relationship with. And so can you just... Flesh that out a little bit, how that works. So part of my anthropology or assumptions Mm -hmm. about what it means to be human or understanding of human nature is that we are relational beings. Mm -hmm. And I would say that ultimately we are created to be in relationship 
to be to have love, experience love with God and others. Mm-hmm. And so I would not only say that's the telos or the goal of human development, but it's also the process yeah. of human development. So we change, grow, mature, decline, get hurt, recover, etc in the context of relationships with people. And I think there is something about the process of knowing another and being known that enables us to be known and reflect upon who we are, to become aware of our uniquenesses, to understand how they fit or don't fit with the world, to understand how we need others uh, to compensate for our own weaknesses, and that we can't do it all, that we're not individualized packages. (laughs) But that in those processes of relating and having fun and laughing, but also arguing and bumping heads and realizing that We might theoretically be particular and unique, but we have some unusual particularities that are always easy for other people. Mm -hmm. That learning to accept those in ourselves is all part of the journey, but that doesn't happen alone. It seems like there needs to be way more of an emphasis um, for that and lots of reasons. That paralysis of indecision that Mm -hmm. we were just talking about, and then what you just said, just getting out there and doing something. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Like, you're not going to jump in and do something like, I'm not going to just... Maybe I should be a mathematician, you know, but just something. Yes. And you can change your mind later. Yeah, (laughs) because you need to be in context, in relationship with other people to get feedback. It won't be time-wasted. It will not be time-wasted. Yes, yes. Okay, that's awesome. I wondered about the idea of meaning-making. I have, like, a theology and culture education that I got here at Fuller, and we talked a lot about uh, narratives Mm -hmm. and stories Mm -hmm. and... I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how that relates to thriving. This answer in whatever way you want, because I'm just going to just sort of ask broadly, I want to hear more about meaning-making and how that connects to thriving. Mm -hmm. Are beliefs part of that? Narratives? Like, if you find yourself, and how much so, and how much does the actual narrative matter? Mm -hmm. Like, if I believe I'm part of this story, grand story of redemption, Mm -hmm. and I really truly believe that, Mm -hmm. and uh, God has something for me to do in that economy, in that kingdom, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. how much Mm -hmm. does that... Mm. Lend itself to my thriving, or maybe just talk about that, mm-hmm. however you feel led. <laughs> awesome. Well, great question. So in the lecture, um, I talked about, or in our discussion, how I'll say like three functions of meaning. Mm-hmm. And one is to enable us to comprehend and make sense of the world around us and our experiences. So when I have a meaning system, let's say it's the gospel, mm-hmm. it helps me make sense of when things go wrong or mm-hmm. suffering, that why I might be ill or why someone something bad has happened to something, someone around me. So it can help me comprehend and make meaning. Secondly, our meaning systems also can help direct us towards purpose because when we have a system of meaning for our life, we know what we value Mm -hmm. and what informs our identity. Mm -hmm. And so then that then speaks to what are those purposeful goals that we might pursue. And we want to have as much consistency or coherency between the goals and activities of our life and the values um, and our identity. And Thirdly, meaning also informs how much we matter. And so when we have a meaning system that says our being is essential to this planet or to this earth or to God, that gives us a lot of sense of security and also motivation to be ourselves and live out our lives. When we don't, when you are meaningless, you Mm -hmm. have a lot of existential crisis. So, and I think narrative is super helpful Mm -hmm. because a good narrative Mm -hmm 
has all those aspects of meaning. Mm-hmm. It helps us comprehend the world. Mm-hmm. It helps us, directs us towards what's most important and what we value and what is purposeful. And lastly, it tells us that we matter. So when I experience myself as a daughter of God, as part of this grand narrative of creation and fall and redemption and flourishing and eventual consummation, mm-hmm. and, and I have a role in that story, mm-hmm. as you were saying, mm-hmm. like I'm part of that story, mm-hmm. I matter, mm-hmm. right? That's extraordinary. Even though the God of the universe is the author of that story, the fact that I'm part of that story is amazing. And so often when I'm talking about story and narrative, I um, will say that if you know the role Mm -hmm. you have in your story, Mm -hmm. that's your purpose. When your role is a part of a really big story, like the gospel, that's one heck of a purpose. What I think it's cool, and maybe I'll just point out for the sake of those listening, that everything you're saying is based on sort of your research, right? Like you're a scientist, you're a psychological scientist, and so you're finding through your research that these things hold, hold up mm-hmm. as you go out and talk to people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. talk to groups and stuff, that all of that holds up, yeah. Absolutely. That's so cool. Yeah, and then like all the positive benefits of mm-hmm. having a purpose. Yeah. So when you have a lofty purpose, it or- helps you organize your life. It helps mm-hmm. you organize your energy, helps you prioritize goals. I'm wondering, I guess, where you might see that go wrong. Mm-hmm. People have a lack of purpose mm-hmm. or a, don't have a story, mm-hmm. or is it more, maybe it's more accurate to say they have a bad story, <laughs> sure. a bad narrative, Absolutely. where they're like, mm, I don't matter. Like, how does, what does a bad, this gone wrong look like? Absolutely. So, yeah, but there's a couple complications where narratives can be difficult or mm-hmm. go awry. So we can have a negative narrative. Mm-hmm. And there are therapy approaches that mm-hmm. are narrative therapy where they help people rewrite, retell, internalize a new story. And that really shapes the way you see things. So you might take someone's, depending on your narrative about yourself, you might take someone not being very friendly towards you as, oh, they don't like me or I'm bad, where it might be they're actually intimidated by you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why, because they think you're so awesome. Um, So our narrative, the story we tell about ourselves, is really powerful and impacts how we perceive things. So we can have a negative narrative. We can have a narrative that informs bad goals. We can also have conflict between narratives. So for example, there may be many narratives within the Christian mm-hmm. framework, but just looking at like capitalism, the narrative is success, finance, influence, more is more. And with uh, many Christian narratives, that's not always the end game. And so maybe in the prosperity gospel, there's more alignment there. Mm-hmm. But within many narratives, justice might be more of an end mm-hmm. or relationality or community or love mm-hmm. or sacrifice. And so when the story that we choose to tell about ourselves doesn't align well with the culture we live in or the schools that we're a part of, there can be conflict. And people have to have the reflective capacities and take the time to disentangle. Either synchronize them or get rid of some stuff or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I I really think kind of a fun cultural hermeneutic is to look at the Instagrams you follow. And, And what are the narratives? that those images convey or your Twitter feeds? What are the narratives that are conveyed? And, and how is that helpful for your mental health? Like what, what are the purposes it's giving you? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's amusement and curiosity. Mm-hmm. And, and if we keep it there, that's great. Mm-hmm. But when that becomes a source of identity mm-hmm. or expectations that we have to follow, yes. that becomes really overwhelming, especially for kids. Totally, totally.
I know I should get rid of mine, but I don't. Um, <laughs> let's switch to talking about change for a second. I feel like you gave a pretty positive... I really have this question. We probably should have started here because now we're going to build it. <laughs> but if people can truly change, and of course we... Especially, I feel like, in Christian culture, but maybe in the larger culture, but really raising up stories of radical change, where mm. someone had some extraordinary event happen in their life. Maybe it's a testimony story, or like, God revealed himself to me, and now I no longer have these addictions, or something like that, you know, and it happened like that. Mm-hmm. Or we talked about slow change over time. Either way, it seems like you presented a somewhat optimistic view of change, yet you said there were some constraints, so can you just... Talk about how you see that and what's optimistic, what's pessimistic, where are you agnostic on this? Um, No, that's a great question. So I think um, the framework that I come from as a developmental psychologist is really trying to understand the complexity of the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. And part of my posture in that is acknowledging there's mystery and things beyond our human comprehension at this Mm -hmm. point. And I'm amazed at looking back just at what my field has learned in the last hundred years about human development. I'm very optimistic that we'll know more in another hundred years. But I will still acknowledge that there's room for mystery, the work of God, Holy Spirit, that might work within human concepts we understand or within embodied mm-hmm. factors, but might work beyond that. Um, and I think that's just a starting point for me. I feel like if we didn't believe that people could change, we wouldn't be Christians. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And I leave room for God. Like working, I can have as many formulas, diagrams, yeah. theories, yeah. Uh, research that demonstrates how change happens. Yeah. But I also leave space that God might just reorder that and work beyond that in some quote unquote miraculous way. Um, but there are ways that psychology has gotten at that can enable humans to change. But it feels very related to the question of agency and how much do people have control of the choices they make, you know, you feel like, you feel, I mean, just anecdotally, you hear about, you know, people who have horrible upbringings where they're just subject to abuse and neglect in extreme ways, and then they grow up and they make bad choices, and how much can they be held accountable for those things or for, for the ways that they were formed? What do you think about that in the sense of agency? And maybe you could connect that to maybe how we see that in the church um, mm-hmm. and how we could do better mm-hmm. there, maybe? Mm-hmm. Well, and this is where I think psychological science can be really helpful yeah. because, um, in a sense, we aren't all dealt the same deck of cards. Mm-hmm. So whether it's for genetic reasons, whether our parents were depressed or addicted, mm-hmm. using substances, whether we are brought into systemic issues of race, mm-hmm. lack of opportunities, lack of privilege, lack of choice... All of these, whether individual or systemic factors, can really, in a sense, work against thriving and people, quote-unquote, becoming all they can be. And if I had a magic wand, the church would have more sophistication in terms of recognizing individual limitations that might be caused by trauma, whether in utero or post-utero, that actually reorders our psychology, Mm -hmm. like reorders our regulation systems, changes our brains so that we can't calm down, that we can't actually sleep because we're traumatized, um, that our memories aren't working as well, that our empathy is our capacities have been hindered or won't ever develop because of the brain that we've been born with. And thus being in relationships is always going to be more of a challenge. And so how do we help, you know, be community? How do we help people with their disabilities, differences, 
opportunities mm -hmm. um, become more fully who they were created to be? And how do we also work with the systems um, that don't allow for liberation and in developing into your true self? I think yeah. those are things the church needs to attend to. Yeah, and that's a one way that science can help us know how to love each other better. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> the, right, right. The call to love one another. This last question is just sort of a, a little bit more personal, but I just wondered if you had an answer for ways that your study of psychological science has, understanding, has enhanced either your understanding of God or Jesus or your own personal faith and ministry life. Has Are there examples or touch points where... I know it's a big question. You could probably go in a lot of different directions. So answer however you wish. But was there a moment where you were studying something in research and you're like, wow, this, you know, connects to my spiritual life in some way that I didn't expect or anything like that? Mm -hmm. yeah, that is such a great question. And you know what? I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that question. <laughs> um, there are so many. Yeah. And that's why I love what I do. Because yeah. it's like I just use psychology as a tool for understanding mm -hmm life and faith and all of that. But I think maybe where it started was observing when young people, kids had a clear understanding of what was important to them, how they were more able to organize their lives around that and that gave them direction. And that seemed important. Mm -hmm. And as I was in the education system, high school, college, graduate school, I actually really wanted to study values. And I was at Stanford, and that really was not an option. And I recognized that actually a lot of the psychological theories we had didn't actually help get at that. And that got me more curious about understanding theology and faith that did provide a meaning system. So I've been, that was maybe the first issue of where then I started to understand from a psychological perspective how important meaning systems, values were for organizing life. I also think this whole science around regulation and how we can have peace in our faith, even when we can't control the world around us, when things are not going as we hoped, that we can have hope and peace that all will be okay, mm -hmm. or that God is accompanying us in these challenges. And that peace, understanding the power of regulation from a psychological perspective, made me realize, like, wow, this is where my faith experience can help me be calm, mm -hmm. which is really important for all things flourishing and thriving. Mm -hmm. One more thing I'll say, because that's the theme of the seminar, is sort of reflecting on Jesus and what the two natures of human and divine could mean or look like, and also what that tells us about ourselves. Do you find that, <laughs> have you ever had a moment where you were studying humans and you're like, wait, Jesus was human. He, you know, he experienced this, or you know, kind of like take your understanding of Jesus' humanity to another level. And I'll just tack on to that last night we were talking at dinner about how sometimes our, if we study or talk about Jesus' humanity too much, we feel scared too much, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> air quotes, um, we feel kind of scandalized mm -hmm. because it feels like you're taking something away from his divinity. Right. You know? Dirty, <laughs> dirtying God. Dirtying God by saying, oh, you know, yeah. Jesus yeah. had a human body or went through puberty or, you mm -hmm. know, all those things. So... Um, if you have any thoughts on that, just... <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I think that is one of the unique aspects of Christianity, is this conception of a God, you know, who did not consider becoming a human a problem, mm -hmm. that had that humility to condescend to be 
with us is truly mind-boggling. And then to actually think from a developmental perspective of like, God went through puberty, uh, toddlerhood. Uh, did he skin his knees, walking, <laughs> learning to walk? Um, and why didn't Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us more about his childhood and adolescence? Darn it. I'm like, this is a bias in culture. They never tell the stories of the children. Adults always get reported. But that would be really interesting. But there is this tension of like, wow, that makes God so accessible. Yeah. But then it scandalizes us that yeah. like, oh, we're, we're desanctifying God and the holy. And that is so much of... Um, the mystery and complexity of the Christian life, of, of living in a broken body, of throwing an orange at your daughter's school bus, <laughs> and, but of aspiring yeah. to know God and to lead and bring light into this world, yeah. and that God might use us broken orange-throwing beings to be his presence and part of his activities here. Yeah. It makes me think about when Jesus was uh, being baptized by John and John's reaction. It's like, no, you should baptize me. And yeah. Jesus gives a sort of vague answer that a lot of theologians have discussed of like, no, we just should do this to fulfill all righteousness. Mm-hmm. And John's like, okay. But I feel like we're always, like his just massive identification with humanity is yeah. really um, just symbolized in that moment, I feel like. Yeah. So, anyway, thanks for your time. Pam, yeah. I'm take more of your time. Welcome. But um, thank you.